After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 107, the stanzas 16 and 17. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the book of Daniel introduces us to a totally different world from what we are used to. It introduces us to an exotic culture and to the dark world of the occult and the world of dreams and the interpretation of dreams. And so it leaves us with many questions. In chapter 2, Daniel tells, tells us about King Nebuchadnezzar, who is an absolute and despotic ruler. His advisors are men who dabble in the dark and mysterious world of the gods. They're magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. These men collectively known as the wise men or the sages, supposedly can conjure up those gods whom they worship and receive messages from them. It is men such as these who advise the king and who exercise a great influence over the king. Of course, we don't believe that those gods exist, and so in the end they are not so mysterious to us. But what about God speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel directly? That is what we are told about in chapter 2. God spoke directly to King Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Oh, sure, he thought it was his own imaginary gods speaking to him. But as we know, it was the true God who gave him that dream. Somehow Nebuchadnezzar also knew that he was receiving a message from the divine. But that is why he was also so disturbed and anxious to find out its interpretation. The question is, how is it that God speaks directly to Nebuchadnezzar? That doesn't happen today, does it? He doesn't come to despotic rulers and rulers... uh, to despotic rulers in dreams. God also speaks to Daniel. Daniel knows for sure and is totally convinced that it is the God of heaven, the God of his fathers, who is speaking to him. He is speaking to him about the future kingdoms of the world. But exactly what are those kingdoms? Oh, sure, the Lord God also gives an explanation. But what exactly do those kingdoms refer to? We are not told. And yet there have been many interpretations. When you read the commentaries, they are full of speculation as to exactly what those kingdoms refer to. And it is naturally, it is natural that such things are done. For we want to be able to get a handle on things. We want to know what is going to happen to us in the future. We seek security in the midst of a world full of turmoil. We want to know how God is going to deal at the various stages of history. And the more we know, the better it is. And the more secure we feel. Let's be sure God gives us answers to our questions. But we have these answers only if we listen to him. He speaks to us in his word. And so we also have to let him speak to us in his word. It takes discipline to allow him to speak to us and not to be swayed by our own desire to to find out more than we are able. 
It takes us out of the world of speculation, and it brings us to the Word of God. And that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. The theme for the sermon is as follows. God shows his great wisdom and power through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar and to all earthly powers. And then there are three points. I've divided the text into three points. The First of all, the impotence of the wise man. Secondly, the power of God's word. And then finally, the victory of God's kingdom. Chapter 2 begins by telling us what took place in this chapter in the second year of the reign of Daniel. Now, how can that be? For Daniel was in training for three years at the king's palace. And there is no doubt that this took place after Daniel's training had been completed. And so it's a contradiction, but only to us. For it is obvious that to the first readers, there was no contradiction. And no doubt this has to do with the way dates were reckoned in those days. Various commentators come with different explanations For example, there are those who point out that for a time Nebuchadnezzar already ruled as king, even though his father, Nabopolassar, was still alive. And so there are therefore two different dates. At first he acted on his father's behalf, and then after his father's death, when he became sole rulers. Whatever the case, something happened that really disturbed the king. He had a dream. And it was a very vivid dream. It was also particularly intense. The dream terrified him. And he had to know what it was all about. Nebuchadnezzar had many servants at his beck and call. They catered to his every whim. Their lives were totally in his hands. And he could do with them whatever he wanted. And so when he woke up in the middle of the night because of his dream, he summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers to explain to him the dream. They rushed out of their beds. But he wanted to make sure that they were not going to bamboozle him. He wanted to make sure that they really could interpret the dream and that they would not come with some story of their own. After all, these interpreters of dreams claim to have a a direct connection with the gods. Well, if they did, then they should also be able to tell him what the dream itself is. That will be the test to see whether or not they're telling the truth, or whether or not they are just going to fabricate something. He wanted to make sure that they don't hold anything back, whether good or bad. He wanted to have the straight goods. He does not want them to tell him what they think the dream means, but what the gods are really telling him. And the only way to ensure that is by having them also tell him the dream. If they can do that, they can also do the other. It's obvious that Nebuchadnezzar does not trust the magicians, and for good reason. He questioned their motives. Were they doing it for the money? Or for the honor? Nebuchadnezzar was well aware that these men were sly and that they spoke with forked tongues. They were slippery as eels. They were very adept in sizing up the situation and to go along with that. That's how they made their living. They knew how to read people. And they were trying to get a handle on King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And Nebuchadnezzar also knew that that is how they operated. And so he tests them. And that is why they keep stalling for time. They asked him to tell them the dream and that then they would give him the interpretation. But the king states that he has firmly decided not to do that. He will not tell them the dream. And if they don't tell him the dream, then he is going to cut these men into pieces and turn their houses into piles of rubble. Of course, these sages don't give up. They stall for time, for they don't know the content of his dream. So they ask him once again to tell him the dream. They appeal to his reason. They say, nobody in the whole world is able to do what you are asking us to do. O king, please be reasonable. And so they appeal to his sense of fairness. And again, he refuses. He smells the wrath. The fact that they insist on hearing his dream only furthered his suspicion. In the end, he realizes that they are frauds. In spite of their claims, they are impotent, unable to tap into the power of the gods. They claim to be able to do something that they can't. And so he asked them put to death. It's not clear whether or not he had that sentence executed upon them immediately. That may well have happened. Nebuchadnezzar is a man of extreme emotions and actions. He is a haunted man, full of fear and suspicion, and therefore unreasonable, tyrannical, and violent. It is likely that in his rage he immediately ordered his guards to take these men away and to cut them all into pieces, just like he had promised them would happen if they did not tell him his dream. His order of execution, however, did not apply just to those wise men who were hastily roused from their beds early that morning, but to all the wise men of Babylon. Never mind that they had no chance to interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar lumped them all together, including Daniel. However, there is no reason to believe that Daniel was actually considered to be one of the wise men as such. He had been trained, as we know from chapter 1, verse 5, to enter the king's service. Nebuchadnezzar had taken young men from all over, the, from all over to promote him and the Babylonian Empire. He was, Daniel was trained to serve the king so that he could also teach those from his own people to do the same. And so that they too could become pliable citizens of his empire. But, and that brings us to the second point. Daniel was not like any of all the others, including the sages, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers. And that was clear from the very start. He did not participate in the worship of the gods, and that is why he did not have the same diet as all the others did either. For Daniel was a man of God, and God's word guided him and nothing else. Arioch was also supposed to put Daniel and his three friends to death. But as the text says, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He did not complain or protest. He did not panic either. No, he calmly spoke to Arioch. Daniel trusted the Lord. He knew that his life was in God's hands. He went to the king in person. To ask him to give time 
no doubt at that point he also gave some kind of assurance that he would be able to tell him the dream and give him the interpretation. Now the question is, how could Daniel be so sure at this time? Would you or I, under those circumstances, be able to do the same thing? Would we expect God also to reveal such things to us, that he would also speak to you and me directly as well? The answer is no. God no longer communicates with us in this way. Those who claim to have an exclusive and direct conduit, a direct line to God, are not telling the truth. Those kinds of people make it up in order to make themselves look good, so that others can look up to them and make them think that they have a better and more special relationship with God than others. They also do it in order to have power over others. They say, God is speaking directly to me, and that is his message. For if God is speaking to them, how can now anyone contradict them? And that is how many churches and also cult leaders function. They claim to have special, separate messages from God. When Daniel wrote this book, he did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is how God worked at the time when the scriptures were not yet complete. Daniel lived in a special time. During those days, God spoke through the prophets. And that's what he did later on as well through the New Testament prophets. But he is very selective and careful when and whom he chooses. He gives messages to his prophets at special times in the history of Revelation. And he does that in order to make his word complete. Today there is no longer any need for that. We have everything necessary to interpret the times and the seasons and God's plan. Daniel was not any more deserving of God's revelation than any of us. And Daniel also knew that. Daniel was a humble man. He knew that everything came from God. He knew that he has no power of his own. And that is clear throughout this book. And that is also clear from the way that he conducted himself in this instance. Before he goes back to the king, he gets down on his knees. He prayed. And he asks his friends to do the same. Daniel must have gotten an indication from God that he would speak directly to him. That God is going to work through him and to give him extra powers. Otherwise, how could he be so sure? And in the night, the Lord God also reveals the dream to him. And after God has done so, he thanks God in his prayer and he praises him for giving him the wisdom and the power and the ability to make known the dream of the king. It is a humble prayer in which he gives praise to God for the amazing revelation that only he can give. He praises him for revealing deep and hidden things and for knowing what lies in the darkness. God is the one who exposes all things. There is no darkness with him. He is the God of light. He is so much different from the non-existent gods of the underworld, from the gods that the Babylonians serve. Verse 24 says, 
in the NIV, then Daniel went to Arioch. It is better to translate, as other translations do, that therefore Daniel went to Arioch. He went to Arioch to show the kind of God that he serves, the true God, the almighty God, the only one who can truly reveal what lies hidden. The king has to realize that he is not dealing here with one of his wise men, who are in the service of the devil, but that he is dealing here with a prophet of the Almighty God. When the king asks Daniel whether or not he is able to tell him his dream and interpret it, then Daniel correctly says that he can't. Only God in heaven can do that. He is the one who controls the times and the seasons. And so once again, he gives honor and glory to God alone. And then he proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar not only what the dream was, but even what his state of mind was before he fell asleep. He says in verse 29, As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. In other words, before he was falling asleep, he was thinking about the future. And no doubt, this king will have had visions of grandeur, but also anxiety about the future. And then Daniel tells him what his dream was. In his dream, he saw a large statue. It was awesome in appearance. Its head was pure gold, and the chest and its arms consisted of silver. The belly and thighs of the statue of the statue were made of bronze and its legs of iron. Its feet consisted partly of iron and partly of baked clay. He also saw a rock was being cut out. But this was not done by human hands. And that rock struck that statue on its feet and pulverized it. The residue was like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, which the wind swept away without leaving a trace. It was that dream that terrorized Nebuchadnezzar. The statue that he saw in his dream was enormous and it was powerful. And yet that very statue was struck down. It came to nothing. Nebuchadnezzar had to know what that all meant. And Daniel obliges him. For that is why God gave him that dream in the first place. And Daniel explained that the whole statue represented various kingdoms. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. After that, he tells him, comes another kingdom, one inferior to his. That is the kingdom represented by the chest and the arms. And then a third kingdom will come about. The kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. And then finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. But that will be a divided kingdom as represented by the clay mixed with iron. What do these kingdoms refer to? Over the years there have been many interpretations. Just read the commentaries. Speculations abound. Generally, however, commentators believe that the kingdom after the Babylonian Empire is the Persian one, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And that may well be true. And it also makes sense. Throughout the book of Daniel, a little bit more clarity is given as to this passage as well, and as to the existence of those kingdoms. However, let us not forget that Daniel gives a prophecy, a prophecy that God gave to him to utter. 
this prophecy does not just apply to his time, but also to later times, to much later times. And this prophecy refers to today as well. The point that the dream is making is that all kingdoms, no matter how strong they may be, will be destroyed. The point is that God is more powerful than any king or nation or kingdom or empire at any time. Not a kingdom on the world will stand. For all kingdoms are brittle. All kingdoms are divided. For all kingdoms are made up of sinful people. There have always been people and there continue to be people who want to give exact dates and times and events. They want to get a hold on history and therefore to get a handle on the present and the future. There are, for example, those who hold the historicist view. They take up, they take a newspaper approach. They apply prophecies such as found in the book of Daniel and other apocalyptic books such as Revelation to specific things that happened in the past and that are happening in the present. They identify specific events of history and find support for that in the Bible. It can be done. But only if it clearly comes from the text of the Bible. And only also if you remember that all prophecies have a broader application. They always refer to all times. With such prophecies, God gives us a history of the world. There are also those who hold a futurist view. On the basis of a prophecy, such as found in the book of Daniel, they predict future events. That's what the Adventists do. You can think especially of the Adventist churches, such as the Jehovah Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists and many others. Apocalyptic prophecies, however, should not be used to predict the future in that way. But it should help us to understand timeless spiritual truths. To help us understand the fight between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Throughout history, there is an ongoing battle between good and evil, between the church and the world around The statue, brothers and sisters, represented all kingdoms of all time. We are given here a picture of all of world history. Oh sure, some specifics are given here which obviously apply, first of all, to Nebuchadnezzar and succeeding kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was made of gold. That is because he was the head of the first world power. But please note that the value of each successive kingdom decreases. After that comes a silver empire, and then of bronze, and then one made of iron, and then one of clay. The scholars, the wise men of today, they see a progression in history. They think that through education and evolution, man slowly but surely is coming to a higher state. Scripture, however, shows that the opposite is true. Things are going to deteriorate. And in the end, everything here on this earth is going to be destroyed. And that's what that rock represented. We come to the third point. Note well that the rock was not cut out by human hands. In other words, it is not man's doing, but God's doing. Although the rock is undoubtedly a reference to Christ, it is much more than that. 
It refers to the triune God who will smash all human pride and pretensions of mankind. Whoever does not worship him will be pulverized. He will, no matter how powerful he is, how rich he is, how many men he has under his control, he will be destroyed. He is like chaff before the wind. When Daniel wrote this prophecy, the people were in exile. They needed comfort. They needed to understand that God will not allow the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar to last, nor the kingdoms of any man to triumph. They had to understand that God, the God of their fathers, that he is in control of history. They had to understand that God was going to continue to realize his plan of salvation. And brothers and sisters, this is a very powerful message. Not just for them, but also for you and for me. Right after the fall into sin, God already promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed. At that time, God already prophesied about the coming Redeemer. And here, that powerful message is once again affirmed to those who feel oppressed. Those who feel powerless in the midst of strong forces. Strong forces that they cannot control. What a comfort that was for them. And how wonderful it is that Daniel could be an instrument in God's hand to show the power and the majesty and the glory of God. Although King Nebuchadnezzar seemed very impressed and praised God, the true God of Israel as a revealer of mysteries, he had not really become converted. Here we see this man, this great man, who controls all things, we see him fall prostrate before Daniel. And yet, it was not a sign of repentance. For how could he not do that? How could he not stand in awe? How could he not praise God? For it was clear that Daniel was able to do what no one in earth was able to do. But his actions show that his heart had not really changed. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with material things. And he believes that that is also how other people are motivated. He says, money makes the world turn around. And so he lavishes his many gifts on Daniel and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. He also honored his three friends by making them administrators. However, the riches that he can dole out cannot even begin to compare to the riches that God gives to those who put their trust in him. The powerful message of Daniel is that earthly splendor and earthly powers are like chaff before him. Only those who believe in him will receive gifts that last into eternity. Only they will be exalted and given the rule over all of God's creation. And that is not a rule over earthly kingdoms, but a rule over a spiritual kingdom. But that kingdom will also come down here on this earth. For heaven and earth are going to be reunited. And all those who believe in God will rule over that beautiful creation of God. 
That is the gift that God gives to those who put their trust in him. And that is the meaning of God's prophecy for us. God is in control, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. God rules. And those who believe in him may rule with him forever. Amen.